You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from USA Today and MMA Junkie, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Uh, health-wise, let's get a health update. How's your dread disease? I think I'm finally over it, uh, for the most part, although I still, I had, you know, I get that thing where you have a bad cold and one of your ears still feels plugged up even though you're over the cold. Yes. I don't really have a good sense of how loud I'm talking. Okay. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that out there right now. Okay. Well, if you see me give you the thumbs down, that either means I want you to talk quieter or you're just spouting unbelievable bullshit. Or. Could be either. You can't hear me, so I should talk you're, louder. Yes, you should talk louder. Okay. Uh, you broke my doorbell this week. Should we tell the people about that? The much ballyhooed, much criticized doorbell here at the rental house where my wife and children and I are currently living. Uh, you broke it. No longer works. What you mean is I came up your broke-ass doorbell, pushed it like you keep imploring me to do, and nothing happened except another small fragment of plastic broke off in my hand. And it did not ring. That's what happened. You broke it. Is I mean, you're the only one who ever uses it, the only one who's ever commented on it. It used to work. You have used it several times since. Now it no longer works. You've so. been living in a damn fantasy land with this doorbell, where you act like everything's fine, like nobody notices... Like everything is totally normal with that doorbell, and I'm I'm the crazy one for saying something. I mean, now that I think about it, perhaps you did us all a favor. Perhaps you should get a medal of some kind for saving humankind from the evils of the doorbell. Like so, the bodies of small children are not strewn around the front yard, being electrocuted. Thank you. And they came up to try to sell us Girl See, Scout cookies. That's all I wanted was a medal. That's you're, all I wanted out of this. You are the true hero today. Well, I'm, and the verbal congratulations are nice, but I am going to insist on the medal. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. Fulton and Rourke is back for its second tour of duty as the flagship sponsor of the CME. That actually reminds me I need to re-up on my foamless shaving cream because I don't know if I could live without it at this point. Uh, they're cool guys and a very cool small business, so we encourage you to get out and support them. In case you missed it last week, your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks, is about to tell you about some new Fulton and Rourke products that just hit the streets. <sighs> I got it. You ready for this? Yeah. Now, the people can't see this, but we got you some handy pronunciation guides. Don't even need them. This week. Just going to freestyle it. Okay. Fulton and Rourke just launched a new limited reserve addition to their line of solid wax-based colognes. It's called Escalante. Escalante. It features Haitian vetiver, Italian bergamot. And balsam for a bold yet dry fragrance that is sure to leave an impression. Fun fact I just learned from the Fulton and Rourke guys, bergamot is an, a little Italian citrus fruit that gives Earl Grey tea its unique flavor. Uh, that can't be true. You know, the, the co-main event podcast loves nothing more than a fun fact. Yeah, that aren't true. They also just released their cologne refills, so you can keep your handy, shatterproof Fulton and Rourke cologne square for life. When your old supply runs out, just buy a refill and pop it right in the same metal square container. Uh, heap those additions onto the other great products we've told you about in the past, like the hand-milled bar soap, that foamless shaving cream that I think is so dope, uh, and the face wash, which I also use. And right. you can start to see why the CME is down with Fulton and Rourke. I was going to mention your face. 
Looks washed. It looks much more washed, yeah. doesn't it? On top of that, there's a new promo code just for CME listeners starting today. Enter the promo code CME2016 and get $15 off any purchase of $75 or more. Again, that's at the website Fulton and Rourke, or Rourke is spelled R-O-A-R-K.com, and the promo code is CME2016, all one word. Well, so we got a weird, an interesting, a unique situation this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. Say we do. Where we are going to uh, go off script a little bit, not going to use the uh, three-round format that we so often use. We do this from time to time. We go old school, you might even say, zero rounds, uh, zero time limit. We just, I mean, there is a time limit, but we don't have to tell the people that. Uh, we just, we're going to chop it up and kick it around. We're going to talk about the two biggest... Uh, Storylines coming out of UFC 196 this past weekend. Uh, we, we got crushed by listener mail, which we always like to get tons of listener mail from the people out there, uh, which is, is good because it tells us the people are engaged. They tell us what they want to talk about, what they want to hear about. So what we're going to do this week, Ben, is we're going to have, I guess, approximately a 30 minute discussion about, uh, Conor McGregor's upset loss to Nate Diaz, where we're going to use some of the best listener mail questions we got. Uh, then at the middle of the show, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. He's going to come in and we're going to play Master Tweet Theater. It's been a minute since we did that. So we're looking forward to catching up with the world's leading theatricalist. And then the second half of the show, we will talk about Misha Tate's uh, victory over Holly Holm in the uh, UFC women's bantamweight title fight. I mean, what else do you want out of this one? Did you did you really want us to sit around and talk about Beeston 25-8 decision win over Tom Lawler? I mean, no, we, you did not. We could talk about the bricklayer. Alir Latifi, but come on. Well, we know who gets the clicks around here. And we already said all we wanted to say about Alir Latifi was our chance to mention his CME nickname, the Bricklayer. And that's pretty much it. All right. So we didn't talk about this. Do you want to, do you want to alternate reading questions? Do you want me to read all the questions? How, what are we doing here? Can your voice handle it? Your I can handle sickly it. Sickly voice. Let's, let's alternate as long as I can go first and read the first question from just says the 209. So you know where we're going. Yes. You know where the, the lean of this, the gangster lean of this question is going to be. The 209 asks simply, are you surprised, motherfuckers? It actually says, are you surprised, motherfuckers? Which I assume is a typo, but I kind of like motherfuckers. I was going to give him give him a break there, but okay. Stickler for the truth, Chad Dundas. This Are you surprised, motherfuckers? This comes from the 209. Yes, I am surprised, in fact. Uh... And I, you know, I wrote on Bleacher Report this past weekend, my, my post, uh, event column. This was kind of like the ultimate middle finger moment for Nate Diaz and the entire scrap pack, the Diaz crew, you might even say. Uh, they're guys that normally don't need much of an excuse to think that the whole world is against them. And coming into this fight, I think that was probably pretty close to being the truth because obviously Conor McGregor was being largely trumpeted as the UFC's newest, biggest star. Uh, the promotion certainly had big plans for him. Uh, the legion of Irish fans that follow him everywhere wanted to see what he was going to do next. And I think even, you, I guess you could make the case that the media kind of largely overlooked Nate Diaz's chance as a short notice uh, replacement opponent in here. And so I thought for him to come out and just set fire to all of the UFC's upcoming plans was maybe like, I don't know if you want to say revenge, but probably a pretty sweet moment for him because not only is he able to to suddenly capture the limelight in the wake of this fight, but maybe it felt like payback uh, to a company that he had had kind of a contentious relationship with as early as 2014. Okay, let me ask you this, because I was also surprised, motherfuckers, uh, to see Nate Diaz win this fight. 
Why were you surprised? Why did you think that Conor McGregor would beat Nate Diaz? Uh, I mean, I think that that's maybe the million dollar question in retrospect that, that, uh, I hope that we get into as we move along. But I, I, I mean, we talked about on this show last week. I think we did. All bets would be off if, if we went to the ground. So it wasn't a surprise to see Nate Diaz handle Conor McGregor with a submission once they got there. Uh, I don't think anybody expected him to be able to weather the power of Conor McGregor the way he did. And, and maybe we can get into the reasons why that might have been the case uh, as we move through some of these questions. I don't think people expected Conor McGregor uh, to g- get tired like it seemed like right. maybe he did a little bit. Uh, and I think that, you know, if we're being honest, probably after watching Conor McGregor tear through Jose Aldo in 13 seconds in his last fight the way the way that he did, we were probably all buying into the hype. A little more than maybe we should have. I was, I was thinking about it today, actually. I just thinking that it's a weird situation now with Conor McGregor because he has won the fights that I thought he was going to lose and now has lost the fight that I felt he was going to win. Yeah. So I guess I give up with this guy <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on. Next time he fights, whatever you think is going to happen, you should say the other thing is going to happen. There you go. Now you're covered. Just, so I should do like so, some reverse psychology. Yep. On myself. On yourself. Interesting. I like yeah. that idea. How surprised were you, motherfucker? Pretty surprised, motherfucker. Uh, remember when we were talking before this fight and I was saying that I thought the three unknown variables were one, how the size difference would play out if, you know, they would make a difference for, as far as just the, the range and everything that he's been able to control. Uh, Nate Diaz's ability to eat his power. Uh, also the other variable was, and how good a shape is Nate Diaz taking this thing on short notice? And then the ground game, uh, which we weren't sure was going to come into play because Nate Diaz is not really known for trying to initiate the ground game. Instead, the way he usually capitalizes on his uh, jujitsu is exactly like this, where he beats somebody up on the feet, kind of overwhelms them with volume uh, and just that pressure and wears them down until they feel kind of desperate and got to get out of there somehow, drop down for a takedown, and then you're in a ground battle with Nate Diaz, and that turns out to be a bad idea too. It's amazing how he just got Conor McGregor to fight a Nate Diaz fight, the same way he gets all these other people. And you can even, you hear people afterwards, like Michael Johnson afterwards in their fight saying, like, I knew what he wanted to do, and I was telling myself, don't get sucked into that fight. And you get sucked into it anyway. Like in the first round, Conor McGregor, he's moving all over the place. He's He's keeping it flowy. You know, he's out there like like he's dodging pool noodles, and he's moving really well uh, and hitting Nate Diaz with that left hand. And then in the second round, when he starts to slow down and Nate Diaz starts to connect a little bit, it's just that same uh, style he always wants to fight where he ends up getting guys to stand in front of him and he's just throwing, uh, not throwing anything super hard, but just keeps constantly coming at you with it. Uh, and it wears guys down. And I, I was amazed that, that that he was able to do that to Conor McGregor. Uh, and also just really surprised, like you said, that he took the power the way he did. Didn't seem to bother him one bit. Next question this week comes from Otto Kivirama. Nailed it. Now I can see why you wanted to read the one from the 209. <laughs> he writes, so straight to the point here, it's a McGregor question, as you might guess, by the disproportionate amount of media coverage he is getting. So let's add to it by all means. Does the beat down Mr. Diaz, but does the beat down by Mr. Diaz change anything else other than keeping Connor from being brutally knocked out by Mr. Lawler and maybe even RDA? Connor will spin this into new hype in no time and will reportedly defend the featherweight strap at presumably two UFC 
200. Is this the right move, or does Connor still have enough juice behind him to fight for the lightweight title next? What do you think? Please discuss. Uh, it seemed like prior to this bout, that Conor McGregor wanted to be done fighting at 145 pounds. His coach had said he he didn't want him to make that cut anymore. Uh, after we recorded last week in some of the pre-fight interviews he gave, Conor kind of indicated that he would only go back down to featherweight if the proper matchup presented itself. Uh, in the wake of this loss, though, I, 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 you know, it kind of reverses my thinking about Conor McGregor. It seems like maybe at this point his best bet is to go back to 145 pounds and, and defend the title either against Frankie Edgar or a rematch against Jose Aldo. Uh, and I didn't think that before the bout. I thought that his best, most lucrative options were at the two higher weights at, at 155 and, and 170. And I think, you know, weight definitely was a factor in this fight, but I think that it's kind of being overblown in the, in the wake of the fight. Clearly like Conor McGregor and probably the UFC kind of want to say, uh, that this was had him they want to say he oh he moved up 25 pounds he jumped up two weight classes and and that that was the problem like so but let's not lose sight of the fact that even though this fight was at welterweight this was sort of two lightweights fighting and i yes. think that two the lightweights fact, who basically agreed not to cut weight right i do think the fact that that diaz was able to weather the power of conor mcgregor was, was arguably the turning point in this fight and the fact that mcgregor didn't you know didn't wasn't the bigger man and wasn't fighting a uh, a natural featherweight probably had a lot to do with his power not winning the day for him. Uh, well, I also think the height and reach played a little bit into it. You oh, could for see, sure. yeah, uh, especially in the first round where um, a lot of his strikes, his both that that the kicks he was trying and that left hand a few times just came up just a little bit short, and he was just used to a different sort of range fighting those featherweights. And Nate Diaz, especially for a lightweight, uh, is a little taller and a little lankier. Um, and it seemed like he was having a little bit of trouble adjusting that Nate Diaz wasn't where he thought he was going to be. But it was that big difference was he had grown so used to that left hand just basically being like a superpower that he could engage whenever he wanted to. And featherweights could not seem to stand up to it very well. And Nate Diaz, give him credit, you know, he's not it's not just that he is a bigger guy and therefore uh, is going to be able to take anybody's punches a little easier. He's just, he's known for having a good chin. Both Diaz yeah, brothers are. Sure. They're not guys who get knocked out very often. Uh, it was interesting to me that after this fight, at least in his post-fight interview with Ariel Hawani, and I think again at the press conference, uh, McGregor mentioned Jose Aldo first before he mentioned anything about fighting Frankie Edgar. He, he had kind of said, because uh, Jose Aldo was celebrating publicly celebrating McGregor's loss on Twitter and McGregor obviously had some choice words uh for Aldo about that but like his his he said maybe I'll go back down to featherweight and shut him up. I think at the press conference he did say that he thought Frankie Edgar deserved a shot at the title, but uh it was interesting to me and maybe telling that that McGregor at least in my view seemed to want to fight Jose Aldo next again. Yeah. It's doesn't it seem increasingly like just the way the narrative is shaping up. Frankie Edgar is going to get screwed again. That's too bad if that happens. Yeah. Just looking up from his newspaper, putting his spectacles down and heaving a sigh as he calls out for uh mother to bring some tea. <laughs> uh also the first mention here so far of Mr. Lawler, uh which that was the the rumor right was that if Conor McGregor was able to beat Nate Diaz, that then he was going to fight Robbie Lawler at UFC 200, uh, which in retrospect now, considering the way this fight played out, 
seems like it would have been a damn mess. Does yes. it not? Yeah. And they're saying the same thing about Nate Diaz now that, that the UFC was talking about putting Nate Diaz in a fight with Robbie Lawler, which I'm not sure I totally follow. I see why they would want to do that. I'm not totally sure I follow the reasoning on that. Maybe we got a question about that somewhere in here. Uh, but yes, in retrospect, it seems damn lucky, frankly, for Conor McGregor that he didn't, that he isn't going to wind up in there. With Robbie Lawler, at least maybe in the unlucky short term. for Robbie Lawler because you know he would have loved to make some of that money. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, next one here. Um, uh, let's see. I'm going to skip over that one. Uh, okay. From Brett Carroll. Between the pre-fight press conferences and the post-fight interviews, UFC 196 gave us an interesting glimpse into the mind of Nathan Diaz. I found his quote on the Fox Sports 1 post-fight show about climbing a mountain and seeing himself and his brother alone at the top to be quite poetic. I think it's fair to say that while Nathan is not particularly educated, he certainly isn't dumb. With his spectacular win over Conor McGregor, do you think he will now get the quote-unquote push he so desires from the company? Please discuss. Thank you. Now, the, the push thing came up a lot after the fight. He, he mentioned it several times that he was wondering you know, when he was going to get some help from the company, when he'd been in the UFC since he was 21, wondering when it was going to really start to pay off, uh, and saying basically that he felt like Conor McGregor was a good fighter, but the reason he was where he was was because he got that push and Nate Diaz had not gotten it. Um, and I felt kind of of two minds about that. That he's making a valid point that Conor McGregor did get a huge promotional push that Nate Diaz didn't get. At the same time, when you watch that CNBC interview, which was just awkward as all hell and also somehow a whole lot of fun to watch. Is this the fucking money channel? <laughs> it yeah. is. It is basically the money channel. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, that's you the are on the money channel. Uh, <clears throat> but see, when you watch that and you're, you're kind of reminded, however briefly, Okay, there is some logic behind who's getting the push. It's the, you gotta have somebody, or at least you'd like to have somebody who can go out there and make those talk show rounds before the fight to really hype it up. You know, the CNBC is kind of an extreme example of it because it seemed like everybody involved in that realized to varying degrees how ridiculous it was that they were even doing this. But when Conor McGregor, you can, you have a guy that you can put on, you know, some kind of late night talk show, you can put him on cable TV news, uh, and he can just kind of roll with it and sell it. And Nate Diaz is the entire time being kind of a obstinate teenager wondering why the hell he's there. Do you think that when you see stuff like that, you, do you think it's justified that he has not gotten the push? And what do you do with him now? Well, I mean, I, I, it would, you'd be lying to say that this wasn't a, a great win for Nate Diaz and a big win for him. The, certainly, I think, the biggest win of his career thus far. But you also by beating Conor McGregor, don't absorb all of Conor McGregor's powers as, as if by osmosis. It's not like they just changed places. Uh, I think that Nate Diaz, if I had to guess, I would say Nate Diaz is going to be a guy where if you tuned in as a casual fan to watch this fight card and you watched him beat Conor McGregor and saw how he a uh, acted afterwards, I think you're going to remember Nate Diaz. And I think that you will be interested if you are, a, you know, fight savvy if you are a person that likes to watch fights you'll be interested to see what nate diaz does next so i don't argue against a high profile next fight for nate diaz and i mean i hope to god he gets paid a lot of money because i think he deserves it and it seems you know for a long time he and nick have seemingly struggled with the, their place in this sport and why they are in this sport uh and so it would be i think a feel-good story for him to to make that money uh, and be able to buy all the designer weed he wants. 
Uh, but at the same time, designer weed. That's what you think he wants. I think, yeah, I think he's going to go get like some of that. Coach weed. I think he's going to go get weed. some of that, uh, uh, medical marijuana down there in the California. He, which he alluded to at the first, at the press conference at, uh, at the gym in Torrance. He didn't say it in words, but somebody asked him what he was going to do with the money. And he was like, Oh, I'm going to buy some nice stuff. And then there were some cat calls from the audience. And the gesture that he made with his hands led me to believe that he was going to buy clouds of smoke. <laughs> so I think that that's probably a, a, a given. Um, but he doesn't become Conor McGregor. He's not suddenly going to be the UFC's biggest star. If he winds up in the main event of UFC 200, wow. Well, that would be amazing for him. Yeah. Well, it th- feels like, though, doesn't it, like everybody is still thinking that Nate Diaz is on a brief but enjoyable ride here nobody expects him to beat conor mcgregor he goes out there and he beats conor mcgregor now we're talking about throwing him in there against robbie lawler where you know it's kind of on one hand nonsensical you beat the featherweight champion to set you up for a welterweight title shot when you are mainly competing in the lightweight division but you know there's some kind of diaz family history with robbie lawler and rafael dos años has got that elephant man foot thing going on right now anyway so why the hell not uh and but i don't think a whole lot of people are planning on welterweight champion Nate Diaz uh, the morning after UFC 200. But I think we got a question about that later on. We, we can move on to that. Uh, this is another, I think, maybe weight cut question, but it's an eloquent, eloquent one. JP Prenovost writes, In a strange twist of fate, it was quite fitting that GSP was at the event on Saturday. Indeed, I'm sure you'll recall that when there was serious talk of him moving up to challenge Anderson Silva, he made it clear that he would have to take the requisite amount of time to bulk up to 200 pounds by putting on lean muscle mass before cutting down to 185 once his body had had time to adapt. He also spoke of his concerns uh, about going back down to 170 after having transformed his body in that manner. In other words, pure GSP, well thought out and scientific. In the aftermath of Conor McGregor's loss, I've read a lot of analysis about him not being able to maintain his usual fighting style for an extended period of time given the extra mass he was carrying on the day of the fight. Uh, it was pure muscle, of course, but it was still much more mass than he would usually fight with. The results were there for all to see. So my point, which I would welcome you discussing, is that the McGee ride was great, but he attempted to do something in two weeks, which should have taken months to do, and it simply and perhaps logically did not work out. I, for one, hope he learns from it. Now, that, a lot of good points there and stuff I want to respond to. However, I also want to pair this and just turn around and hit you with another question from Travis Steele, uh, playing devil's advocate here a little bit to that one. All the talk about McGregor getting beat because of a size difference is a hollow argument. He didn't fight Hector Lombard. He and Diaz are both natural lightweights who basically agreed to not cut weight. Diaz had no appreciable advantage in any measurement. I mean, height and reach, I think. Uh, some say that Connor gassed due to carrying the extra weight, but that doesn't hold up well either. This is the weight he trains at, so he's damn sure used to it. He also avoided the dehydration he normally endures before a fight. Why can't the reason he lost just be that he ran into a guy who could eat his power and also touch him up better than anyone else so far? Both good points, I think, made in these. Uh, the thing about J.P. Prenovost compare and contrast with the GSP, I wanted to point out, is that, yes, he's totally right that GSP was way more deliberative about anybody asking him to go up and wait, and he was way more careful and laid out his reasoning behind it, and you can't really argue with that reasoning. Like, hey, if I bulk up, because I never do the steroid, uh, I would have to bulk up naturally, it would take a while, and then I wouldn't be able to come back down again. I would have to go up and stay at that weight. Uh, and kind of consequently, he never did it. And he just stayed at welterweight his entire career, had a great career, made a whole bunch of money. But isn't it more exciting the way Conor McGregor did it? Even if you can make the argument that he 
he rushed it, didn't do it the right way, maybe didn't didn't take enough time to do it, uh, and out, went out there and took a loss instead of maintaining that you know almost robotic perfection of GSP. Isn't this more exciting than GSP's perfection at the one weight and never trying to never taking that chance and rolling the dice somewhere else? Remember that one interview where Joe Rogan was like, George St. Pierre insists on moving up to 185 naturally. I don't know if you remember that. Because w- w- at the time when I saw it, I was like, what other way would he move up, Joe Rogan? What <laughs> what are you implying, sir? Uh, well, GSP himself did make a point of saying he that did, over yeah. and over again. Um, yes, uh, it is more exciting. And I think you got to give props to Conor McGregor, man, at least in that aspect of his game. Like, he has been so savvy, not only about the way that he talks and the things that he says, and he's clearly like kind of a uh, trash talk genius and does it in a way that I think not very many people could get away with it uh, and does it brilliantly. Probably the greatest trash talker that we've ever seen in this sport and maybe in any sport. Uh, But in addition to that, like he's been very savvy about his actions and how he has handled uh, and shaped his career in that. I think that he inherently understands that to be exciting and to be the kind of guy who takes risks and to style himself as the sort of fighter who will fight anyone, anytime, anywhere, kind of like Donald Cerrone, ironically enough, considering the things that McGregor has said about the cowboy in the past. Like, he understands that if that's how you conduct yourself, it will make you popular with the fans, and I think he understands that if you do suffer a loss, it will be easier for you to get big-time second chances, because that... That kind of attitude earns you a lot of political capital in this sport. And I think McGregor understands that. And I also think that that's just kind of the kind of dude he is. Like when he, after the fight, when he's talking about, I'm going to take this, uh, loss like a man, he's kind of, he's very classy about it. I think that comes naturally for him. I think that that is not an act. I think that that's actually Conor McGregor being Conor McGregor. Yeah. Well, and I think that his attitude about it, which was, Hey, I took a chance and it didn't work out. I'm, I'm not going to stop taking chances as a result. Like that is part of the reason the hype has grown so incredible and out of control so quickly about him. That's what people like about him is that, that he seems to be kind of living on a razor's edge in that sense. And yeah, you're going to take some chances and it's not always going to go well, especially in a sport like this where crazy shit can happen all the time. Uh, but. His attitude about it, I think, is one of the things that helps people put it in context. And, and I don't think that, like, if you tell me, like, okay, what, he should have stayed at 145 and never stepped out of there and just kept winning fights. Like, I don't feel like he has lost anything so great that it, it, he never should have done it in the first place. Yeah, no, I think that, that he's going to be fine, man. He's got plenty of good options. Like, uh kind of remarkably good options for a guy who gets choked out in the manner that he did. Uh, and just to revisit the weight thing quickly, I feel like people want the weight issue to be very black and white. I feel yeah. that they want to say like, oh, the only reason that McGregor lost this fight was because he quote unquote moved up to weight classes, or they want to say the weight made no difference. Nate Diaz had no uh, advantage because of it. I think it's a gray area, man. I think that the truth, as it so often is, is probably in between. I think, you know, Nate Diaz probably did outweigh Conor McGregor by like 10 pounds on fight night. Uh, and that obviously is not the whole ball of wax, but I also think that it was kind of significant. Like I said before, 
maybe especially in his ability to to absorb Conor McGregor's punches. Uh, but I also think you've got to give major amounts of credit to Nate Diaz as being the kind of dude who's probably kind of hard to fight on short notice just because of the, uh, you know, the length that he has, his reach, his boxing skills, uh, c- coupled with his jujitsu skills and, the, you know, the fact that, like you said, he's very good at suckering you into his kind of fight. And I think that, like, it, it did take a lot of guts, and I think it's admirable for Conor McGregor to move up to 170 to have this fight. But also, like, I mean, we got to give Nate Diaz credit, man. He was just the better fighter. Yeah. Here's one uh, question that I think goes along with the, a little bit what we were talking about, Conor McGregor's response after the fight from Todd Tomey. Um, it's early Monday morning, and the MMA fortnight has not yet been released. I am certain we will hear something to the effect of, oh, Conor, he's a gracious, humble, and defeat until we are blue in the face. Question for you. This is a great quality, but does that, but does that give you license to be a prick beforehand? Be a prick all the time. I don't know. I feel like Conor McGregor has played that aspect of the game in a very smart way. He He seems to know that the thing that most MMA fans and most sports fans will respect the most is incredible bluster before the fight. And then as we see with a lot of guys, uh, humble, real Conor McGregor after the fight. Right. And I think he's done that even when he wins, when he yeah, shows he up has. to the press he conference. Totally has. He doesn't show up and, and start crowing about, see, I told you I was going to crush these bums uh he's a little bit more complimentary toward the guys afterwards he kind of reminds me a little bit of chael sonan that switch that chael sonan would hit especially for chael sonan it was mostly when he lost uh then suddenly he would show up uh and had a a very different attitude uh, about the fight but uh with mcgregor it seems a little more genuine uh and i thought that the way he handled it afterwards it wasn't just the you know gracious or humility um but the way he explained his thinking and you know, what he did wrong, why he doesn't regret trying it, all that stuff. I think that that only helps him going forward. I think that make like, I, you know, one of the things I remember Greg Jackson saying to me was that people, whether they realize it or not, uh, watch a sport like this, uh, in part for inspiration. And I think when they, when you hear Conor McGregor talking about like, Hey, I, I took a chance because that's how you get somewhere in life is you're taking chances and you're trying stuff. And I did not let the fear of failure stop me from doing something that I wanted to do. I think that that's a message that a lot of people are going to hear and think like, all right, even if I am not a huge fan of all the crazy trash talk beforehand, here is somebody that I want to hear from in the future and I want to pay attention to. Uh, and I think that, that that is going to resonate with a lot of people. And I don't think that uh, – I, I think especially you see with him and Holly Holm both after those losses showing up to the press conference, facing it head on and dealing with it. I think that always helps you in the eyes of fans, at least the fans who are hardcore enough to be paying attention to who shows up to the press conference. I think it's certainly better than the Ronda Rousey route where the next time people see you, you got a pillow over your face in LAX, you know? Yeah, I agree. That's what I was going to say. Uh, it's going to, like him acting that way is going to help him transition to whatever the next thing is, uh, even though the next time we see him is going to be when he shows up at a press conference uh, with all of his prepared material ready to go about, Rafael Dos Anjos or Frankie Edgar or Jose Aldo or whoever he ends up fighting. I think the word boom might be thrown around. <laughs> uh, this is an interesting question from Clifford Krause. He writes, I had a Twitter beef with a McGregor fan a while ago. He made me look like a real idiot by saying that Edgar would give uh, Connor a hard time. For saying that Edgar would give Yeah, and he actually lulled me when I told him that I had been training since 04. Well, tonight I let him have it. On Twitter, in parentheses. And I feel validated and also great. 
I guess my question is, am I a bad person? Question mark. <laughs> awesome question, Clifford Krause. That is an awesome question, but let's, you know, we, we got a few minutes before we have to move on, but I just wanted to, you know, make a nod at the McGregor fans who are among the most passionate and at times among the most annoying. Yes. In the social media space, uh, and are perhaps rivaled in their passion only by the Diaz fans, which is one of the reasons that this fight I thought was such an awesome matchup. Yeah. And I think that. It's one thing that you and I have talked about beforehand, uh, or, you know, in the past where, when Conor McGregor beat Jose Aldo, and we ended up talking about it before the fight and after the fight of, it always goes through your head when he's facing a new and bigger challenge, just like he did with that Aldo fight. Man, if he wins this, those Conor McGregor fans are going to be insufferable. Uh, and I think that that, in a way, contributes to the backlash among other fans is because they're not just, when they see Conor McGregor get beaten and they take this kind of glee in it, they're not just replying to McGregor himself or reacting to McGregor himself. They're reacting to what they feel are like an annoying subset of, of fans. Uh, and it's, you, you see it some, you know, just where the, the Diaz fans, I think there's a little bit more maybe awareness or tongue-in-cheekness about it. Uh, I don't think when people are just sitting there saying, Stockton, motherfucker, 209, what? I feel like, you know, it's kind of evenly split from the people who are seriously saying it and the people who are just having fun with it. Uh, whereas Conor McGregor seems to have inspired such a, like, quickly swelling bandwagon of fans uh, that are absolutely ride or die, no matter what. Yeah, we got to move on to uh, Master Tweet Theater. Wait. I do, I do want to read this from uh, Asaph. Bitter. That was the one I was. Is that, read. Is that what, uh, that he wrote the he wrote us the question? Holy crap, you guys! It's as if this the secret bullshit doesn't even work. Exclamation <laughs> point. Well uh, done, sir. You know what? There's still a lot of stuff to talk about about Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz, and and next week hashtag ain't shit going on. Ain't shit going. So uh, it's possible we will circle back and hit this stuff up again. As for right now, though. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. It's been a while since we've seen him. I'm looking forward to catching up with him and playing a little Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am in a race for survival. Are you winning? Uh, kind of. I am tied with winter at this time, but I'm hoping it will drop out and I will spring back to life. Yeah, I don't see it happening, but uh, we're going to... We're going to enjoy this time while we have it. Um, what do you got for us? It's been a little while. Yes, it has, and this is probably my last Master Tweet Theater, so I'm glad to be back. <clears throat> but we're ready. We have a theme. We have an exciting sponsor. We have the whole jam, sir. All right. I guess let's start with the theme. <clears throat> yes. No, let's start with the sponsor. Damn it. Just do whatever <laughs> you want. How about you that? You tried to trick me, but I need that $6. <clears throat> this episode of Master Tweet Theater is again brought to you by Waddog.com. God damn it. Marks, B-Girls, Stone Cold Wanksters. These are the people who have not yet joined Waddog.com. Don't be like them. Log on, enter your bank information, and drop your wad. Waddog.com. Stop being a wankster. Stop it. <laughs> Wait, B-Girls? 
B-girls. You know, B-girls on the corner, always trying to catch a man, but never willing to give it up, if you know what I mean. Chad, do you know what it means? I, it seems like an antiquated phrase, if anything. Yeah. I learned it from Marlon Wayans. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess now's the time for the theme. Yes, there is a theme. The theme for this week's Master Tweet Theater is fuck training. <laughs> you know, I feel like this, finally, you've captured a theme that... Seems like it's one close to your heart. It's grounded in the text as well, sir. <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. Tweet the first. You ever want to come on out to the ranch? Come on! Fuck training! I'll show you how to live! Thumbs up emoji. Thumbs up emoji. <laughs> I got this one, Jared. You got this one? Uh, yeah, that's a pretty easy one. That would be the cowboy, Donald Cerrone. That's right. And for bonus points, who's he talking to? Uh, I believe he's talking to maybe Sage Northcutt? Super Sage. But this is kind of an old tweet, right? It is. It's been a long time, sir. <laughs> it has been a little while. Um, although, I admit when I read that tweet, I thought, if there's something... Like, for one thing, if you're trying to get me to watch a Fight Pass show, you're, you're already 90% of the way there with this one. Uh, also... If Sage Northcutt ever gets to the point where he feels like this, you know, the goody-goody Eddie Haskell image is not working for him anymore and he needs to turn it around and actually become, like, a real fan favorite, this is probably the path that gets him there, do you think? Oh, I, I can't wait for it. For uh, Sage Northcutt running around with a uh, two-day growth of beard like Hollywood Hulk Hogan? Yeah, yes, absolutely. In all other respects, the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the second. Installing new hard drive on PS4. Put in the drive, but now says put in USB with latest update file. Done that, but not working. Any help? Okay. Uh, I'm just going to play a hunch here and say Demetrius Johnson. Noted well, gamer. We do Demetrius know he's Johnson. a gamer. Uh, and didn't he also get rid of Xbox after they dropped his sponsorship with PS4? Yeah. He did it in a real sly way, too posted that Instagram picture of and said, my wife bought me a new gaming system. Uh, that's way too long to be a tweet, right? It was one single tweet. There's a lot of abbreviations, but still room for three question marks, as you heard me pronounce at the end there. Uh, let's see here. Another gamer. Um, I'm going to go Michael the Count Bisping here. Under Undercover gamer. Okay. Both fine guesses, both internet dorks, but only one correct. It is Michael Bisping. Oh, fuck you. How is that Michael Bisping? <laughs> I didn't even know that. That, that was, was just a, a guess. That was a bullshit guess, too. I cannot believe you. An incredible guess. He pointed out into the stands or up at the lights and then just hit it out there. All right. Knocks you, it out of are you referencing the natural or an actual thing? A little bit happened? of both. Okay. Kind of Babe Ruth okay. and the natural. All right. <clears throat> but yes, I assume you want to hear it, right? Yes. Installing new hard drive on PS4. Put in the drive and now says put in USB with latest update file. Done that but not working. Get it help. It's somehow gotten worse. Yes, it has become more goat-like as yeah. the days go on. That's it. That's the word I was looking for is goat-like. Just as he does. Michael Bisping is the goat in that respect. <laughs> <clears throat> tweet the third. This is a double tweet. Two of them, both from the same person. <clears throat> the first payphone was invented in 1889, pictured using a payphone. The second tweet, feeling the breeze up here, pictured having climbed a windmill. I got this, Chad, you got this? I mean, I can only guess that that must be Super Sage Northcott, right? That's him. It is, it is Sage Northcott just doing some Where's Waldo shit as usual. <laughs> uh... 
I was talking to somebody recently about how if I had any kind of Photoshop skills, I feel like there's you can make a pretty awesome Tumblr that is just Sage Northcutt like traveling through art history, right? Like ah. just like you know Sage Northcutt and Guernica and all kinds of weird bullshit, right? Plenty of cherubs here. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. See, Sir Nigel knows what I'm talking about. Don't give me that look. I'm an educated man, sir. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Congrats at Bisping on beating the legend at Spider Anderson. What war and the diversity you went through. Well done. <laughs> the diversity? Yes, the diversity. Overcoming diversity. Chad, you, you got any thoughts on who thinks Michael Bisping really overcame diversity? I mean, that sounds like maybe Jessica I, since we know she has had trouble with English as a first language in the past. So I'm gonna, and we do know Sir Nigel likes to throw Jessica I into Master Tweet Theater. I sure do. I'm going to go Jessica <laughs> I here. Damn it. That's a good guess. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to go Uriah Faber. Hmm. For no reason, but your bisping thing was for no reason, and that turned out okay. Both fine guesses. Both people have imperfectly subdued English, and both wrong. It is Roy Nelson. Oh, Roy Nelson. Big country Roy Nelson, helping you overcome diversity. Yes. That's the first one I've got wrong today. Oh, well, come on. Really patting yourself on the back for the, the easy ones. If you think that was hard, wait till you hear Tweet the Fifth. Oh, God. This one is diabolical. Tweet the Fifth. Leap on into the gym today. It will change your life for the positive. Hashtag leap year. I'm going to say Rich Franklin. See, I was going to go Randy Couture there, so I guess everybody wins. (laughs) Both both fine guesses, but both wrong. It is Shane Carwin. God damn it. Returning to the gym and Master Tweet Theater once every four years. <laughs> now we got to watch out for Shane Carwin among the usual suspects. I don't think he'll be appearing again soon. All right. How are we ever going to overcome this diversity? <laughs> yeah, because it is diversity. You're so... I could see on your face you were so pleased with yourself before you'd even finished the joke. <laughs> Very happy, sir. Well, I guess that's it for this one. What do you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping an exciting project about a ruthless mercenary and art dealer who learns to love again in a post-apocalyptic American city. I see. And what's it called? It's called Escape from L.A. Story. (laughs) And what role do you play? I play a vaguely effeminate art critic. Yes, you do. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Alright, Ben, well, we want to get into some discussion here of Holly Holm and Misha Tate fighting for the women's bantamweight title in the co-main event of UFC 196. Uh, I know I scooped the Asaf Bittner question from you at the end of the first part of the show, so why don't you lead us off here? Okay. Uh, how about, uh, Dramon from Little Rock? Hard not to feel good for Misha Tate, am I right? She's worked a long time and Ronda's shadow has always seemingly been sort of overlooked by the UFC, despite being WMMA's second biggest star and, obviously now, a super good fighter. Please discuss. 
Yeah, I think that that is the proper inkling coming out of this. You know, Misha Tate has never been anything besides uh, a great ambassador for the sport. Uh, a great, I mean, a good, very good fighter. Uh, although I think we'll talk about this a little more. I still can't quite figure out exactly how she's doing this shit every single time. Uh, but, you know, for a person who lost twice to Ronda and, and suffered the indignities of that season of the Ultimate Fighter coach, coaching opposite Ronda and was kind of used as Ronda's foil in, in almost every way in this women's bantamweight division, uh, while Rousey was still the champion, I do feel like, you know, even if you are sad about Holly Holm losing this fight and, and sad about, uh, at least for the time being, it seems like the rematch between her and Rousey being put off. Uh, you gotta also feel good for Misha Tate, who's worked an awful long time, uh, and was the Strike Force champion and has now added UFC champion to that, uh, you know, by, by grabbing this come from behind win. The, here's a, a Dana White quote. I put this on Twitter earlier, but I think it bears repeating here. Uh, this was when Misha Tate, remember, was saying how she was not gonna take any more of these just, fights that weren't going anywhere she wasn't going to fight on fight pass anymore she needed the ufc to tell her what her path back to a title shot looked like otherwise um she was thinking about actually retiring and just giving it up for good and dana white's response to that quote i want somebody that wants it you know misha tate is talking about retiring right now in this sport when you start thinking about retiring you should retire misha probably should retire if that's what misha's thinking right now it's probably a good idea that was like four months ago chad dana white UFC president saying, you know what, maybe you should go ahead, retire. Bye. See you. If that's how you feel. Now she's the UFC women's bantamweight champion. So I guess good thing she did not take his career advice. Uh, also good for her for taking that stand and being like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do this thing where you say each time I go out and fight, if you win this one, then you'll get a title shot. And then you think about it for a couple days and go, eh, you know what? We changed our mind. Like, I need to know what I'm doing here. A completely fair position uh, for giving her time and, and place in the sport. Uh, and then she goes out there against Holly Holm. Doesn't look like it's going very well. And she finds a way to just goddamn get it done. Yeah, uh, I was watching this fight and then we got into the fifth round and I was starting to think, okay, it kind of looks like Holly is going to gonna salt this one away, uh, you know, in a tougher than expected matchup, but it still retained the championship. And then my infant son started crying in the other room. I had to go into his room and, and put his pacifier back in his mouth. And when I came out, I, I was, came back into the room just in time to see Misha Tate hop on Holly Holmes damn back. And I was like, Oh no, what happened while I was away? Uh, so that was an interesting fight watching experience for me. Yeah. Let's do this next question. Next question from, uh, Derek Cansoles or Cansoles, I guess, depending on how you want to. That last one seems like a real Montana pronunciation. That's right. I normally hate this kind of talk, but did Holly Holm get exposed on the ground? She seemed kind of terrible whenever Misha got her down there. Discourse it. Yeah. I mean, if you, I understand why you hate that kind of talk. I hate it too. We seem to throw the word exposed around too easily, but. That did kind of seem like she got exposed there. She never seemed at all comfortable, never seemed like she was uh, mounting too great a defense at any time when she got down on the mat. Both in the second round, uh, you know, she got stuck kind of in half guard for a while, and then when trying to get back up to her feet, she just left too many openings for me to take to grab her neck. You can see it when she is trying to, to get back up at points, and she's got her hands out in front of her on the mat, 
which when you're doing that and somebody's on your back, they can see your hands on the mat. And they know that means that you do not have a hand free to defend your neck. Uh, and so Misha Tate, as soon as she saw that, boom, there goes the, the forearm wrapped around the neck. And she kind of had to wait that one out in the second round. But then it seemed like, okay, the thing to do here is just not end up in that situation at all. And her striking was very careful. Uh, she didn't go crazy trying to bash Misha Tate on the feet because she didn't want to run right into a takedown. And that was going very well until the fifth round when Misha Tate kind of had to say, fuck it, I got to get in there and get a takedown. And she did. And it was that same thing again where you could tell she that Holly Holm, having had that experience in the second round, was thinking, no, 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 I have to get back up immediately. And in so doing, in just trying to you know, kind of throw technique out the window a little bit just to try to get up to her feet as fast as she possibly could and not get sucked into the ground game, she ended up giving Misha Tate an opening. Uh, and the same thing happened again this time. She was stuck. Uh, I think that did uh expose some deficiency she has on on the ground. Yeah, if anything I feel like some of our thinking heading into this fight was right. I mean, I think we thought that Misha Tate was going to turn out to be uh an interesting test and certainly a different test than the kind of uh takedowns and grappling that Ronda Rousey had for Holly Holm in their fight. Uh and if anything I feel like maybe I overestimated Holly Holm's ability to stay up off the ground, which she did for the most part. I thought she would be too big and too mobile and wouldn't let Misha Tate take her down, which I think was the case in three out of five rounds, uh, but maybe also overestimated her ability to get up and, and to defend herself off her back. I don't I don't know why I had more faith in it, considering we had almost never seen it except for the very short grappling exchanges she had with Ronda. Uh, but I just wonder, like, if you are the fight camp of Holly Holm, you have to know that that exists, right? Like, regardless of of what you say to her or what you admit publicly. If you're Greg Jackson or, or Mike Winklejohn to a certain extent, um, you have to know when you have a fighter that is not very good on the ground. And that makes me wonder, again, and one of the questions I always return to, like, I wonder what a lot of these coaches are thinking in their own minds. Like, if you know that Holly Holm doesn't really have that, that great of ground skills, you must have been like, woo! Wow, got away with one there after that Ronda Rousey fight. And then I would think, despite the overwhelming public confidence in Holly Holm heading into this fight, like if you knew that that her ground skills were what they were, you would have to be pretty concerned heading into a fight with Misha Tate. Well, it depends what you've seen of her ground skills. I mean, there's some people, they might feel a, a little more comfortable in the gym when there's not as much at stake than when you feel like you're up on the scorecards and somebody has just jumped on your back and you're thinking, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Uh, I think that what we learned was how much of her ground game was built or how much of her preparation for the ground game was built on just staying off the mat. That it seemed so heavy on striking without getting over-exuberant to the point where you make a takedown easy and just staying up upright, not getting taken down, thwarting that, that, that double leg of Misha Tate's and just not getting into that game at all. And maybe not enough planning for if you do get into that game, here's what we're going to do. But, you know, it's always easy to say that afterwards. And, you know, this is kind of this was how Misha Tate was going to win it. So you got to give credit for Misha Tate. And, you know, Holly Holm knew that she wanted to get in there and get the takedown and turn it into a grappling match. And she still managed to do it when she absolutely had to do it. So I don't think I think we are in danger of doing the thing where we see this as a Holly Holm sucks kind of situation and not a Misha Tate is actually pretty good. Yeah, if anything, uh, it feels to me 
like this might ultimately turn out to be a good thing for the women's bantamweight division in, in kind of a weird way. Like I know that previous to this, this had been a one woman show. The, the, the division had been all about Ronda Rousey and we got questions about it. I know we're going to talk about it in a couple minutes, but it obviously seems like we're headed back in that direction. But at the same time, I wonder if it is going to be advantageous for the women's 135 pound division to instead of have a one woman show to kind of have a three horse race, because it seems like no matter what happens next, Holly Holm, Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey are probably all going to be viable, which I think, uh, you know, makes things even more interesting from a matchmaking standpoint moving forward as, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and you know, if you can get any of the other women in that division, like, uh, Sarah McMahon or Kat Zingano to kind of assert themselves into that group, then all of a sudden maybe you got a viable, vibrant division instead of let's just line up all these fighters and have Ronda beat them one by one, which I, I just think that that's, that's more interesting. Yeah, it is more interesting. Uh, question. Ross from Ohio. Misha Tate was basically told that this was her last shot at a UFC championship, and the only reason it was happening at all was because Ronda did not hold the strap anymore. After her win, Dana White has said Ronda gets the next shot, and Ronda taps out Misha again. Are her chances at another title shot gone, or does the counter reset now that she's actually won gold? Uh, I feel like I just spoke to that a little bit, but I think that her prospects are are improved. I mean, it would be it's kind of a bummer, frankly, for Misha Tate. Uh to win this fight against Holly Holm and then for the UFC to immediately be like, well, she's obviously fighting Ronda Rousey next. Uh, maybe not a bummer. You're probably going to make a bunch of money, especially if it goes down at UFC 200. But yeah, like, what were you hoping for instead? Amanda Nunes, Misha Tate? Well, I mean, I'm not saying anybody should be surprised, but I do think uh, it's kind of an awkward look. Like, we all knew if the UFC has proved anything in its handling of both Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor, it's that it loves money. And... Even amid rumors that the relationship between Conor McGregor and the UFC was kind of going south, it still let him do basically whatever he wanted to do because, uh, that's where the money was. And we knew that, you know, given, given the first chance, they were going to try to get the belt back on Ronda Rousey because that's where the money is. But they also seemed perfectly amenable to the idea of throwing Rousey right back in there with Holly Holm, even though I think, People, you know, the conventional wisdom at least thought that wasn't a great idea, that Ronda had a lot of work to do with, with being able to chase her down and get her to the mat or, or sharpen up her stand-up game enough that she would be able to be competitive there. Uh, so it seemed like they were perfectly willing to, to put Ronda out there for what everyone assumed would be a second loss because that's, that's where the money was. So we're not surprised that this is the case. However, it does feel like an awkward look to me. Uh, most specifically, I think we got a question about this. Maybe I can just read it real quick from David Dorr. He wrote, did, did Rondo's public relations department receive a short email last night about the newfound openness for discussing potential upcoming mixed martial arts bouts? <laughs> uh, Suddenly we want to talk about fighting. It seemed like a very awkward move for Dana White to go to the press conference and say that he got a text from Ronda Rousey saying, time to get back to work because that makes all of the like depression and, uh, all this time off that she needed to kind of rebuild herself and put put back together, that kind of makes it look, I don't want to say fake, but like suddenly that depression fell by the wayside in a hurry when someone she had already beat twice was the champ again. Yeah, well, it also makes you wonder, like, wait a minute, so you weren't doing much work when you thought that you had to beat the person who broke your whole shit last time? Because that would seem like that's where you need some work, is to beat that person. Uh, not to beat the person you already beat twice. But if you're Misha Tate... 
Matt, put yourself in Misha Tate's shoes right now. Aren't you saying to the UFC, yes, book that Ronda rematch and please book it as soon as possible. Can we get her when she's coming straight off the movie set? Can we just get her straight out of costume right into some Reebok and have that fight? Can she eat an apple yet? I don't care. Let's have the fight as soon as possible. That's your best chance, right? Like you want to fight uh, Ronda Rousey again if you're Misha Tate anyway, I'm sure, just because she's super competitive and she wants to get a win there. She doesn't like having a, an 0-2 mark against Ronda Rousey. She wants to show that she can beat her. I'm sure she uh, wants to convince herself that she can beat her and convince everybody. I would think your best chance to beat Ronda Rousey is when she's coming off a loss that had to have made her question herself, um, maybe kept her out of the gym a while, and then she has all this other stuff going on in her life. It seems like prime time if you want to go Rousey hunting right now. And also... Get that money while you can, while you've got the belt and they have to come to you. Uh, because, as we saw, the UFC was in no hurry to uh, make that fight when Misha Tate didn't have leverage. Yeah, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I'm sure Misha Tate, being the competitor that she is, wants to fight Ronda Rousey again. Uh, I am not a professional fighter, but if I had spent a long time toiling in in the shadow of Ronda Rousey and and... I basically had this long career and had worked so hard to become the champion. I would want a title to get a title defense under my belt, man. I would want to go fight, uh, you know, Kat Zingano and, and, and see if I could beat her and like have a little run with the championship before it became apparent to me that they were just going to turn around, uh, and try to feed me back to the person that they wanted to be the champion. Uh, cause you know, maybe that's the most lucrative fight. And for the UFC, it makes the most sense. Uh, but if you're Misha Tate, and maybe this only fuels you, but don't you have to feel like that's a little bit of just additional disrespect? Like, you've always been the second biggest star in this division. They never really did anything with you. Uh, the boss said maybe you should think about retiring that one time you did, uh, stick your head up and, and try to make a little noise. And so to win the title and then that for them to be like, Oh, congratulations, Misha. You're fighting Ronda in July in three months. Uh, which we don't know, but if that's where it'll wind up, but maybe, uh, that to me would feel like kind of a slap in the face. Yeah, but if they're slapping you in the face with a big stack of money that you then get to keep I after guess. they slap you with it, hit, hit hit me. I guess. Turn the other cheek, you can hit me again. Do you feel like that is like the uh, – I guess we don't know. We, we have to take Dana White's word for it that he got this text from Ronda Rousey saying it's time for me to get back to work. But does that seem like a watershed, image-changing moment to you for Ronda Rousey? Because previous to this, she has always been – you know, the biggest badass on the block and she wanted to fight everyone and beat them all one by one and skip off on her merry way undefeated for her to, to come back immediately and be like, ah, yes, it's time for me to suddenly shed my depression and come back and fight this person. I've already beat twice. That seems to me, uh, unseemly a little bit. Yeah. But it also seems like we've been through this before where Dana White tells us about text message conversations he had with fighters and, maybe it does not provide all the necessary context. That's true. That's true. And I guess uh, uh, I would have to grant her respect for her pragmatism, if nothing else, but at the same time, like, seemingly going after the easiest championship fight. I don't know, man. Especially because I would think if you win, if you go and you fight Misha Tate and you take the title off of her, I can tell you what's probably your first title defense. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Here's one from Alex O'Neill. Before she got tapped by Misha in the last round, I thought Holly Holm was cruising to victory at UFC 196. Then I jump on the internets and see a story about the official fight scorecards saying the thing was about to be a draw. How did you guys see it? 
I thought Holly was about to win. Um, I know that there was a lot of talk that that second round should have been a 10-8, and maybe it should have been. I don't know. It was, it, uh, I believe. It on, was on the official on, scorecard. On all the scorecards. I just, I don't know that, I mean, I guess I didn't have a strong feeling about it in my own mind brain before the, the actual fight ending ended. But uh, yeah, I thought, I thought Holly was about to win. If, like, had it gone to the cards, I would have expected her to win a, a close decision. Well, I think maybe the question is, she won rounds one, three, and four, right? Probably ten, nine rounds, all of them. Misha Tate, I think you absolutely give her a 10-8 for the second round. And then the fifth round was Holly Holm doing exactly what she had done in one, three, and four, right up until she got taken down. Right. Uh, so what happens if she basically survives to the end of the round with Misha Tate latched onto her like a backpack, uh, and we go to the scorecards? Then that's, I guess, when things could get interesting. But I, I'm sure that that's one of the things that Misha or that Holly Holm will think about afterwards is that kind of approach, especially in the last round when I was watching the corner audio where you could watch the just the fifth round and, and listening to the corner audio from Holly Holmes corner and you could hear the way that they were talking was it was very defensive it was very like hey don't get don't run in there on her trying to hit her don't get too excited watch out for that takedown here she comes you know turn her when she comes in shooting for that takedown uh and get away it was really just like let's kind of ride this one out and win the decision. And it seemed like it reminded me when we were told that, uh, Misha or that Holly Holm had been holding back before she fought Ronda Rousey. And we wondered whether we were supposed to believe that or not. And when you see the way she fought Misha Tate, you think, okay, yeah, no, that seems more like the Holly Holm that we saw in those other fights where when she fights somebody who's not just coming straight at her and getting right up in her face. And when she is worried that, you know, she can't go right at them or she'll make herself vulnerable to the takedown. This is the approach we get from her, that it's a little more careful, not quite so uh, dangerous and dynamic as she was against Ronda Rousey. Uh, and it makes you think she's got to find some way to be able to, like, whether it's just getting more comfortable with her takedown defense or not being scared of getting taken down and being on the ground, more confident in her ability to get up. But she has to find some way to be able to unleash some of those striking skills and not worry constantly about the takedown ruining everything at any minute. I wonder how this fight would have been regarded if it had turned out a draw on the scorecards. I wonder what the public reaction to that would have been because nobody hates anything like we hate a draw. Like that's, that's the worst thing that can happen. I wonder if it would have been regarded as a disaster or if like a screw job for Holly Holm or if we just would have turned around and talked about booking them at UFC 200 and it even would have been a bigger promotional deal. Yeah, maybe Misha Tate, if there was a draw, just kind of pumps her fist and thinks, all right. We get to do it again, brother. Next question from James Murray. He writes, does Holly's loss to Misha make home Rousey, the home Rousey rematch even more appropriate? After Holly's thorough domination of Ronda, the immediate rematch made little sense uh, from a meritocracy standpoint. Now, with both coming off losses, it makes sense in terms of both business and merit. Perhaps the stakes are even higher, despite no belt on the line. That's kind of what I thought. Like, people were talking... Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the immediate aftermath of this, that the that the Holly Holm Ronda Rousey rematch had quote unquote been spoiled or ruined, and I thought to myself, well, I guess maybe this is a good question to ask you. Like, uh, is the bigger fight Misha Tate Ronda Rousey for the title, or is the bigger fight still Ronda Rousey Holly Holm for without the title? Because I would almost say it would it would be the latter still. Uh, but but again, I'm not a I don't book pay per views. I'm not a a cable executive i don't know um you know i don't know i still think if you did ronda rousey and misha tate for the title it it seems pretty perfect 
right now. Like, I don't think there's really a bad way to go in either one of those. Um, but I don't, nothing about the way the UFC treats Ronda Rousey and views Ronda Rousey leads me to believe that they're going to put Ronda Rousey in a non-title fight if they don't have to. And also, I think that uh, they would probably look at this and think, assume that Ronda Rousey is going to come back and beat Misha Tate, take the title off of her, and then you can do that that Holly Holm rematch with her anyway. Uh, and you just you get the same fights, but you just get them all as title fights. I mean, all all three of those, or the the whole pairing of that those three fighters, I think, is kind of print your own money material, uh, at least for a little while. You just kind of got to make it while you can. Yeah, I saw people online comparing it to a rock paper scissors situation where they can all beat each other in a round robin tournament, uh, which would be very interesting. Like I said before, like even if even if Ronda beats Misha and then were to come back and lose to Holly Holm again, uh, you know, you still got a situation where Misha and Holly Holm would still be viable and, and a lot of stuff could still happen. So like I said, three-headed monster may be uh, surprisingly kind of good for this division. Yeah. Uh, Want to do one more? Yeah, sure. Let's keep it rolling. All right. Uh, this one's from William Payne, who says, I sure hope no one played a drinking game involving Ronda Rousey's name being brought up during the Holm Tate fight because then they would be dead. But seriously, I understand that the most likely the next opponent from whoever wins would be Ronda, but the fact that they felt the need to bring her name up at least twice around, I didn't actually count this, is ridiculous and somewhat takes away from what was a great fight. Yeah, I get, I mean, again, like them turning around and announcing Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey for the title immediately afterwards, I don't know that you can be surprised. I mean, we all know, we all know what's going on over there. We do. And it was like this even before the fight that Ronda Rousey's shadow just kind of fell over this entire thing. And maybe that was inevitable. One of the things I wondered, though, was uh, this felt like a really big women's MMA fight. You know, it felt like a lot of people were paying attention. It felt like a, an, an important fight. And it was the first UFC women's bantamweight title fight that did not include Ronda Rousey. Was it a glimpse at a possible future without Ronda Rousey? We all know the the writing's kind of on the wall that Ronda Rousey is not going to be doing this forever. She's got the the burgeoning movie career. She keeps talking about how she's not going to do it forever. Eventually, you know, we're going to be facing a Ronda-less scenario in women's MMA. And we've often wondered in the past if the UFC would just straight give up on it after that. When you see a fight like this, does it give you hope? that maybe uh, the future would be okay without Ronda Rousey in it? Or do you think we're still, since we can mention her name twice around, according to a stat that we didn't actually keep track of, uh, does that make you think, okay, we're not we're not really finding out what it would be like without her? Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't ne- necessarily need to be filled with hope on that front because I've always advocated for them trying to do more with the other athletes that they have in, the, in that division, you know, trying to make stars out of Holly Holm and, and Misha Tate, Kat Zingano. Uh, Juliana Pena, Amanda Nunez. They got, there's lots of, uh, uh, fighters in this division that I think, uh, could be viable UFC level stars. Maybe not enormous mainstream breakout crossover stars like Ronda Rousey is, but like you could, you could make this division seem fairly interesting, uh, and, and viable if you really wanted to. I mean, maybe it, it shined a light on the fact that you could have a Rondalis division to the people who run the company because they have always been very seemingly interested in her and not particularly interested in anyone else. Um, I think from like a, a mainstream public standpoint, 
even though I just got through talking about how I thought it was good to have Misha Tate and Holly Holm and Ronda Rousey all active and, and, and viable, I think it would have gone a long way for Holly to have a dominant victory in terms of public perception, just because most people who are not hardcore MMA fans only knew her as the person who defeated Ronda Rousey. And yeah. I think it would have been, you know, the public loves dominance. We know that. And it would have been, I think, effective for people to see her uh, come out and prove it against Misha Tate. Uh, and I actually heard some some uh, jabronis, for lack of a better term, on ESPN Radio today talking about this event and, and making saying that they thought it made the UFC and MMA look less credible that both uh, Conor McGregor and Holly Holm lost, which I think is not correct for numerous reasons. Their objection to the sport seemed to be that it was hard, which uh, <laughs> uh, is, kind of makes you wonder what, they, what they're looking for. Uh, but at the same time, I think like a lot of people probably feel that way and would have felt more interested in investing in women's MMA and Holly Holm if they had seen her come out and kick Misha Tate in the head and have a huge knockout. You know, it's times like this where I'm a little sad that our podcast isn't like Joe Rogan's where anything we say on it becomes headline news on MMA sites the next day. Oh, no, don't say that. Because that. Chad Dundas calls ESPN radio host jabronis, which <laughs> just make for such a great headline. Well, well I guess. Here, here's a question is before we kind of wind down the discussion here on this. Because of the nature of how that fight went and the nature of Misha Tate's come from behind victory, are you, Chad Dundas, prepared to sit in that chair today and say, Misha Tate is a better fighter than Holly Holm? No, not really. But that's why I said earlier, you know, when we began this discussion, I don't know how Misha Tate is doing this shit. Like, she's won uh, five fights in a row now. But like we talked about last last week, all of them except the victory over Rin Nakai at... Uh, uh, the UFC in Japan in September 2014, they have all been come from behind victories. And, you know, the point that I made at the time was if you want to, you can frame that in a way to say that Misha Tate is a consummate KG veteran who ultimately always finds a way to win, or you can make the case that she's just winning these things by the skin of her teeth. And so, uh, you know, this can be a, a funny sport in that way, uh, where victories, wins and losses, especially when you look back historically can oftentimes not be the end all beat all in terms of, uh, you know, what you value. Uh, so yeah, I think that, that, you know, I would be interested to watch a rematch here and, and I hope we get to see one. Uh, but I also feel good that Misha won and I don't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say it was a fluke that she's the, the champion. I feel like she is also a worthy champion just because of the way that she won. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about tapping out and getting choked unconscious? Okay. We only got a couple minutes left, but I, this is a, uh, a popular internet plot line currently, yes. which, yeah. which to me seems bullshit. And, and since you are the co-main event podcasts, jujitsu nerd, uh, I would just like to give you the opportunity to talk about why it's bullshit. It is bullshit, especially, I mean, I can understand when you're caught in a choke and you're working on an escape or you think you have an escape. You th maybe you think you have more time than you do. Or you think it's not as, not as tight. Uh, and you're working for it and you, you basically run out of time. You, you go unconscious and, uh, before you can get out of there or before you can tap. And I understand that that happens. I, you know, that's happened to me before where just in, in rolling around where you think like, all right, I can get out of this. I'm, I'm working on getting out of this. And then the next thing you know, you are looking up at the ceiling and there's a bunch of people standing around asking if you're okay. And it seems like it happened the very next instant. It's a, it's a weird thing. 
but when people are like, Conor McGregor's a pussy because he tapped and, you know, Holly Holm didn't, that just makes no sense to me. I just, it, they think that it was, that it counts as giving up. Uh, whereas, you've seen sometimes where people are in chokes and they have it in their head, like, I'm not gonna be a bitch, I'm not gonna tap out, I'm gonna make them choke me unconscious. But they're not working on an escape. They're not, like, fighting the hand. They're not doing anything to get themselves out of it. They already have given up. They are just giving up in a different way. I, I, it does not prove anything to get yourself choked out. When you're stuck and when you know you're caught, you're caught. You know, it doesn't, you don't get any extra points for going to sleep on the mat there. You know, I, I don't know. I think people, I think that comes from people who don't really know what it's like to be in a chokehold and to have that certainty. Like, all right, I'm stuck. And I'm in trouble here. I also think one of the differences that people overlook in comparing the two was that Conor McGregor had just been punched in the head a bunch, and Holly Holm had not. Holly Holm was in the, kind of a pure grappling situation, got stuck. And give credit to Misha Tate. She did everything right when she put that choke in there, and she hid the hand behind her head. You could see Holly Holm looking for it, looking for that hand to pull it down and, and start some defense, and she just couldn't get to it. There was no space to create uh, and had no good options at that point. Um, Conor McGregor arguably had a little better shot at the defense. You could see Nate Diaz's hand basically on the top of his head, but he also, you know, had been beat up, uh, mounted, uh, punched in the face a bunch. And when he tried to roll to his side like that, that's the kind of move you make when you're just in an oh shit scenario. It's, you're not thinking very clearly. Uh, you're not doing anything like tactically brilliant and you get yourself in trouble. And, you know, he, he I, I don't know why they think that, you know, he'd be, a tough guy if he went to sleep there. Yeah. It, it means nothing. Yeah, the these guys are pussies uh, line of reasoning is not one that I don't think I will ever feel comfortable getting down with. But uh, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week to do something. We'll probably have a hashtag ain't shit going on episode. Ain't shit going on. Uh, even though probably some big news will break tomorrow that we will then have to circle back and talk about. Uh, as for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. I want you to know I'm going to walk out there right now and I'm going to push that door down. We'll see what happens. Moment of truth. We'll see what happens. We will see what happens. Maybe it'll ring. Maybe uh, I'll be sending you a bill in the mail. New doorbell. This thing's expensive. They must be because you haven't done shit.